From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. The U.S.-Mexico border has become a national fixation. The one thing everyone seems to agree on is that there is indeed a crisis at the border. Of course, there's wide disagreement about the nature and the causes of that crisis. Panic over so-called illegal immigration has been stoked by rhetoric and policies coming straight from the White House. But the majority of people in America are outraged by the separation of families at the border. And inhumane treatment of people seeking asylum and economic opportunities in this country continues. Things seem to have reached a boiling point. But rights abuses at the border are by no means unique to the current administration. And the question of what America's borders should look like speaks to who we are as a nation. This week's guest is Mitra Abadolahi, a staff attorney with the ACLU of San Diego's Border Litigation Project. She's been working tirelessly to push back against the most outrageous civil rights and civil liberties abuses at the U.S.-Mexico border, and it's an honor to have her in the studio today. Mitra, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I want to start by talking about the border as a concept. Why do you think it looms so large in the American imagination? What does it symbolize for people? I think it's always really helpful to think about what things were like just a little while ago. In 1994, there were only 4,000 Border Patrol agents. The border itself was far less militarized. The structures, the physical structures of the border were far fewer and less permanent. And that was the way things had been for dozens or hundreds of years. It's really been in the last 25 years or so that the border has become this very militarized, very built-out entity, both an actual entity that has a physical footprint and a emotional and psychological idea in people's minds. Well, and of course, the central piece of this rhetorical debate is the so-called wall that our president wants to build. How much does the debate around the wall affect your work? I think that actually the rhetoric of the wall is central to all border-related work. The idea of the wall presupposes a specific kind of border and a certain function to be played by borders, which should not be accepted as the only possible way of thinking about borders. I think for most people, when they think about a wall, they think about a mechanism of exclusion, and not everyone thinks that way. In fact, in poll after poll, in extended research, it has been found that border residents uniformly oppose further wall building. Take, for example, the city of Nogales. There are two Nogaleses. There's one in Arizona and there's one in Mexico. And they're actually referred collectively as ambos Nogales, both Nogales. And so for folks who live in those places, the idea of cleaving their community is not something that is desirable or viewed as inevitable or necessary. The rhetoric of the wall loses all of that nuance. The civil and human rights side of the rhetoric of the wall is also rooted in the damage that those wall building exercises does to the environment, to indigenous lands, and to access to places that have long been sacred or otherwise essential to specific communities. And that has a much broader impact that then informs those communities' sense of belonging and place 
And then, of course, that leads to a lot of the other abuses that we've seen. Well, the polling numbers are quite stark when you compare the communities that deal with the border as an everyday part of life versus those for whom it's some litmus test of American patriotism. But I'm interested in hearing how you got interested in working on border issues. Yeah, so I'm going to answer that, but I want to say one more thing about the border wall. You all may be aware that the Border Patrol Union was the first union to come out in support of the Trump candidacy. Hmm. And it was unprecedented. That union had never done anything like that before. And it made a big splash at the time. It really sent a message that many found repulsive. These are civil servants. They're paid for by your tax dollars. They're supposed to protect and serve all of us. And that they came out so early in that campaign when the rhetoric was so vitriolic and hateful really spoke volumes about the union leadership's position about a lot of border-related policy. What's fascinating is that many Border Patrol agents have come out strongly against the wall. Hmm. So even among those who make up the entity that's charged with defending the so-called border, there is widespread agreement that building the wall is a waste of resources. In terms of how I came to do this work, it's interesting and kind of complicated, I suppose. I am an immigrant myself, and I've always been really interested in questions of identity and in access to fairness and who counts. I kept finding myself working at the intersection of immigrants' rights, so-called national security, and police practices, which touch on communities of color and immigrants in particular in very different ways and in ways that are very personal and which I wanted to try to help to change for the better. Well, what are the, some of the most pertinent issues that really you started out working on on the border? So when we first started this project, the border litigation project, we were looking at certain issues that in some ways are very classic police practices problems, racial profiling, whether people have the right to photograph or monitor law enforcement, whether community members can refuse to answer questions in Border Patrol checkpoints, especially when they've been identified as citizens for years and years because it's a super rural area and everyone knows, including the agent, that this person's a citizen. So why are they being stopped and asked about their citizenship? Questions like that. I think that as time has passed and the emphasis on the border as a construct and a galvanizing idea for certain bases (laughs) um, has taken off. The work has shifted and become even more life or death. Now you have a full frontal assault on asylum, a real deviation from our obligations, both under international law and our own domestic law, to provide a place for asylum seekers to seek refuge. And a lot of policies and practices that have been implemented in the last three or four years that really just speak to cruelty. They're unnecessary, they're counterproductive, and they're not always easy to address through litigation. And so the other shift has been an ongoing effort building on work that border communities have been doing for years to try to educate the American public about what the border is and what it isn't. Because I think that the misconceptions that persist are how these negative narratives have been able to come to hold so much sway. Well, I appreciate your distinction between the border as it's imagined in people's 
minds versus the actual border as it is. Give us a bit of context for what we're talking about when we actually do discuss the border in reality. So let's start with the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, and some of this is alphabet soup, so it does take some getting used to. The Department of Homeland Security has multiple subparts. Three of the chief pieces of that department are related to immigration. Two are enforcement entities, and one is a services entity. So the enforcement side of house, such as it is, includes ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and is what most people think of when they think about immigration enforcement in America. This is where the Abolish ICE movement hashtag has really taken off in certain corners. But what's interesting is a lot of people, including elected officials, will use the Abolish ICE language when they're actually talking about the Border Patrol. So then the question is, what's the Border Patrol? The other enforcement arm in DHS is U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP. And part of CBP is the U.S. Border Patrol. CBP is the largest law enforcement agency in the United States. It has over 60,000 officials. Within that are more than 19,000 Border Patrol agents. According to federal statute, those officials are empowered to enforce certain federal laws within a quote-unquote reasonable distance from the U.S. border. A 1953 regulation, which as far as we can tell, was enacted with no discussion or debate, there's no legislative history, we don't know how it came to be in place, defines reasonable distance as 100 air miles from any external boundary of the United States. The Border Patrol and CBP have interpreted that to include, for example, 100 air miles from the Great Lakes shores, Hmm. 100 air miles from any airport, which counts as a border. So if you look at a map, according to their interpretation of this regulation, two-thirds of the population of the United States lives in the border. People who would never think of themselves as border residents. My favorite example is the entire state of Vermont is in the border. So all Vermonters are border residents. Now, some Vermonters clearly know that because they're up near Canada. But I don't think any American, if you ask them, what is the U.S. border, would immediately think of Vermont. And increasingly, especially since this administration came into power, The agency has started to say that that's the minimum distance where their authority lies. Mm. So they're even eschewing that very expansive definition as a limiting principle. And ICE, as you said, is responsible for enforcement inside of the interior of the United States. Well, this construct of the interior and the border is false because Border Patrol is in the interior. I think a lot of people think about the interior as though it's distinct, Mm. but I'll give you an example. In one of my Freedom of Information Act lawsuits, we sought documents related to interior enforcement by the Border Patrol in Southern California. Hmm. And we got records showing that Border Patrol was stopping people. And this is before this administration. We're talking 2012, 2013, 2014. People were being stopped in Orange County or in Los Angeles. Now, again, I think most people reasonably sort of practically oriented people would say the border is the border at the south. And so we're talking hundreds of miles north of the border with Mexico. But that if you view it from the coast of California or Los Angeles International Airport, 
there's an argument that that's 100 miles, and so it counts as the border. So more and more you see Border Patrol duplicating the enforcement of ICE, which leads to many questions, including why do we need two federal agencies to do this kind of work? And the thing about CBP that I think a lot of people don't realize, understandably, because it's such a labyrinth of agency bureaucracy, is the staggering amount of resources that are set aside for CBP. It's $16 billion in fiscal year 2018. And one of the things that you hear a lot right now with the rhetoric of a crisis is that we don't have the resources. We can't process asylum seekers because we don't have the resources. There's too many of them. $16 billion, 60,000 agents. What resource limitation are we really talking about? And would abolishing ICE actually address that problem? No, not at all. I understand why people are mobilized around the idea of abolishing ICE. I really do, and I support many of their objectives, which I think are rooted in more humane policing, both at the federal and local level, and a true and justified anger at racial profiling and the terrorization of communities, especially communities of color and low-income communities by federal law enforcement, including federal immigration enforcement. But if you got rid of ICE, you'd still have CBP. If you got rid of CBP, there'd probably be something else to take its place. So the question really becomes, and this is a much harder question that's far less amenable to a pithy hashtag, how do we construct a system, an immigration system, that is more humane and that doesn't require abolition in order to protect the individuals that it's designed to serve? There's no shortage of examples of inhumane acts that are going on on the U.S.-Mexico border. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, we have child separations with the ACLU uh, has been quite active in trying to reunify families. Asylum seekers are being blocked. There's also a fundamental issue with due process for people who are facing immigration proceedings. You were talking about Nogales, Mexico, and Nogales, Arizona. One of the most chilling things I've ever seen was a summary trial for migrants in Arizona in a district court where people lined up by the dozens and in unison pleaded guilty and were immediately removed. So there's scenes every day in all different facets of the border that are just heartbreaking and tragic. I'm wondering, we're talking here on Monday, the episode will come out on Thursday. What do you think is the most pressing abuse at the border? I know there are so many, but what is the top priority at the moment? I think that it's sort of like a beauty is in the eye of the beholder thing. So I have my own answer to that, and it's rooted in my chief concern, which is to limit human suffering. So for me, the most pressing crises are those which permit the dehumanization of people who need help, including asylum seekers, but also people who live in the border region. So speaking of Nogales, one of our cases is a case involving a cross-border shooting, and It's a case that I'm litigating with Legal Learn and others here at the ACLU. And the facts of that case, I think, reflect what the crisis is. And this predates, again, this administration. Several years ago, close to midnight, a Mexican teenager, someone who's never tried to immigrate to the United States, was not trying to immigrate to the United States, lives in Mexico, stays in Mexico, was walking home from a basketball game with his friends. And he was shot and killed by a Border Patrol agent who was standing across the fence 
on the U.S. side of the border and put his gun through that fence and shot it. You can't see through those slats. So he was shooting his gun without a visual. And I think the boy was shot multiple times. I want to say 12 or 14. I can't remember the number and died on the spot. And so what is it about this construct that permits that to happen? What kind of devaluing of people or of entire communities or countries has to be in place for us to allow that to occur? Was there any accountability in that case? No. So it was the first case involving use of force by Border Patrol where the federal government prosecuted the agent, which in and of itself is staggering because of the amount of abuse that we hear about in terms of excessive use of force. The fact that that was the first time that the federal government had actually chosen to bring a a prosecution itself indicates the scope of the accountability problem. There were two criminal trials. The first resulted, I believe, in a hung jury. And in the second, there was an acquittal on the manslaughter charge. We have a damages action, civil case, parallel to those cases that has been pending. There's a petition for cert before the Supreme Court because we won below. And the court said that what happened should be something that someone could recover for. And the government has tried to get the Supreme Court to hold otherwise. And we're waiting to see what will happen. In Texas, there was an identical case, similar facts, another teenage boy shot and killed by a Border Patrol agent. And in that case, the federal court said there's no remedy. And the Supreme Court seems to have agreed with them, at least in the first round. So it's an open question whether there's even anything that can be done when such egregious violations occur. Well, it's a particularly dramatic illustration of the inhumanity at the border that someone's firing blindly across. And another instance, notably, as you said, that was before the current administration, is the documentation of rampant child abuse by Customs and Border Patrol agents that you uncovered. I think it was from 2009 to 2014. That's right. And I think... As I mentioned, the legacy of inhumane treatment of immigrants at the U.S.-Mexico border and elsewhere is quite long. So what, in your opinion, is different now? Our history is not full of great moments in this area, but are things really worse? And if so, how? Yeah, I mean, I think that they are worse. And I think that the reasons that I would give include that words matter. And so the rhetoric that is prevalent now is really very damaging and it villainizes people, it dehumanizes people. There's a lot of misinformation. I think a lot of Americans, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they mean well and they will say things like, well, if you want to come here, you should do so legally. Not realizing that one way to come here legally is to present yourself and ask for asylum. And that that may happen either at ports of entry or between ports of entry, meaning that our immigration laws actually contemplate as a legitimate way of seeking protection in the United States, crossing a border without crossing through a port. And I think a lot of people don't even know that, but they're quick to judge the immigrants who have done that as breaking the rule, not knowing what the rule is. And I think oversimplified rhetoric facilitates that kind of conclusion drawing. And that kind of conclusion drawing fuels policy decisions that are ignorant and not effective. I also think that 
CBP is a notoriously opaque agency. They really don't like people giving them attention. They don't like being held to account. They don't like being forced to answer. And this administration has really put up all kinds of protections for them to shield them from accountability. And that is really very dangerous when you're talking about an agency that not only has the resources that we've discussed, but the power that they have over individual lives. And this is where you see things like, in December, there was a child who died in CBP custody. She had recently crossed the border. She died of dehydration. It was unclear whether or to what extent she was ill before she was taken into CBP custody. It was also unclear what medical attention she received when she was in CBP custody and whether that medical attention was timely. We still don't know answers to basic questions like that. And so to the extent that now there's an administration that wants to embolden and further shield an agency with extraordinary power over vulnerable populations, that's worse because never before has transparency been so important. Never before has so much been at stake. Well, and the issue of accountability is even more complicated, right? Because if, as you said, if words matter and misinformation is a huge problem, the remedy for that is for journalists and activists and lawyers to get the message out about what's actually going on on the border to ensure that the American people understand all of the acts that are going on in their name. But one of the stories that got a lot of headlines in the last couple of months is the fact that CBP is actually targeting those very activists and journalists and lawyers who are trying to shine light on what's going on there. Can you tell us about what's going on there? Yeah, so that is exactly what's happening. It's definitely not a coincidence, but in early March of this year, the local NBC affiliate in San Diego published a story. They had managed to get a piece of a dossier that CBP had compiled about certain individuals The individuals appear to be both advocates and activists who had traveled to Tijuana to be support for members of the caravan that had moved through Central America and Mexico and convened in Tijuana, including many asylum seekers. It also includes certain lawyers and journalists who cover that set of developments. And it's unclear, you know, Is that the only dossier? We don't know. Are there other lists? We don't know. How do people get on the list? What does it mean to be on the list? We don't know. And for many journalists, especially in this day and age who are freelancers, that question about, you know, is this going to affect my ability to travel has significant consequences for their professional work. And some of the people on the list have, in fact, been denied entry, That's correct. That's exactly right. So some of the people on the list found that they were denied entry into Mexico when trying to return there to do their professional work, whether it was reporting or working as lawyers, et cetera. And I think the commitment to the black box is really staggering. This is an agency that does not want people to know what it's doing. And, And the example that I often give people... When people go to a port of entry, so let's take the asylum seeker that we were just talking about, and they present themselves at that port of entry. Now, the enforcement side of DHS is not supposed to interview people about the merits of their asylum claims. Why? Because those enforcement officials are not trained in immigration law. They don't know asylum law. And also they have guns and badges, and that's not who you want asking someone if they're afraid, if they're afraid. So that's problem one. Problem two CBP refuses to let lawyers go through the port 
with their client. So most asylum seekers don't have access to lawyers. That's a serious problem in our system. There's a ton of evidence that having access to the assistance of counsel, even at a minimal level, dramatically improves someone's chance of being able to get some sort of immigration benefit. And that's because our immigration laws are insanely complicated. I adjunct as a faculty of law at the University of California in Irvine. I teach immigration law. I've been thinking about and working on immigration law for a decade, and I still get confused. So you're talking about people who don't speak the language, who have trauma, who most of the time don't have access to the benefit of a lawyer to help them. Those who are lucky and have a lawyer who wants to help them, CBP will not let that lawyer in the room. They won't let someone be there to bear witness to what is asked, to how the person is treated, nothing. Why? How can that possibly be the rule? And what is served by that rule? Who is benefited by that rule? Only the agency. Because the vulnerable population, the people who have the most at stake, who have the most to lose, are the ones who have the least protection. Well, one of the other ways of trying to get inside of that black box, so to speak, is the work you've been doing around documenting things at the border, whether it's taking pictures or in other ways documenting activities of Border Patrol. Yeah. So, You know, it's really interesting. In my experience with CBP, CBP likes to say that it's a law enforcement agency when it's convenient. And then when it's inconvenient, meaning when there are law enforcement best practices or rules that are clearly established that pertain to law enforcement in this country, CBP claims that it's not law enforcement, that it's something separate or different or special. So the most glaring examples of this, we have a couple of cases that involve the First Amendment. Now, your listeners may be aware that the First Amendment protects the right to photograph public officials who are engaged in the discharge of their public duties. What does that mean in plain speak? It means that if there's a cop across the street who's frisking someone and I'm standing across the road, I can record that cop as long as I don't interfere with his activities I can record him. Why does that matter in a free society? Because we can only resist abuses of power about which we are aware. And courts have held time and time again, stemming back 30 years, that the First Amendment includes this right to monitor law enforcement. The agency has taken the contrary position. They have argued that they are exempt from that First Amendment right, that there is no First Amendment right to photograph or record what they do. Why does this matter? Several years ago at the San Isidro Port of Entry, which is the busiest land port in the world, it's the one that connects San Diego with Tijuana, there was an incident involving a Mexican man who was tased multiple times by CBP, and he ended up dying in a hospital shortly thereafter. After the incident, CBP came out publicly and said, swore up and down, that the man had been resisting arrest, that he was violent, and that its agents were in danger, basically, and that that was what had justified the use of force that they had used. It turns out that CBP approached bystanders who had recorded the incident on their cell phones and made them all delete their footage, but they missed one person. And that one person's footage eventually was turned over to the news media who published it. The footage very clearly shows that the man was prone on his stomach He was in handcuffs. He was fully restrained. And he was pleading with the agency to stop tasering him. And they tased him over and over and over again anyway. And that is what led to him dying. Only because someone was filming 
did we have counter evidence to show that what the agency said happened was not at all what had happened? And following that, the family of the deceased man was able to bring a lawsuit and get a settlement for his wrongful death. That's what's at stake. And that's why they don't want you to exercise your First Amendment rights. And so that's something we're fighting about now. Well, and when we think about what kind of world we'd like to see on the border, obviously we want people to stop being tased to death. Obviously we want the inhumane treatment to end. But in a broader sense, what does the ideal U.S.-Mexico border look like? You mentioned earlier the sort of differences between the southern border and the northern border. Should the southern border look more like our border with Canada? Is there another model that you have in mind? What are we aiming for? I'm not sure about the question about northern versus southern. I think that different places have differences that might be valid. I think that what's actually happening vis-a-vis the north and the south here is mostly just about racism and trying to limit labor flows. And I think we should just be honest about that and call that out because otherwise we're just kidding ourselves and we're not going to get to a good policy solution. But, you know, in the southern border region, there are a lot of what are called friendship parks. There are these little plots of land that straddle the border. And up until very recently, people could convene in them. People would hold weddings there. They would have picnics. And it was like a place where people who maybe couldn't come into the U.S. or couldn't go into Mexico, but had family in the other place, could see each other and spend quality time together, could touch each other, could hug each other. All of that's been shut down. So at a minimum, you know, I I wish that there were more spaces for that kind of humanity to be part of our border conversations. I think that border communities are really thriving, interesting, complicated communities, and they have this both and culture and to starve that and to force it into this very rigid, militarized, dangerous because of all of the armed federal agents who are going rogue (laughs) space. It's just a real shame. Well, I'm looking forward. Do you see any possibility that this uphill battle can be won? Yeah. I mean, I think that the first thing, the most important thing is The American public is being told a lie about the border, and we are complicit in that because until we educate ourselves about the truth about the border, we can't resist the lie. And if you can't resist the lie, the lie will become your sense of factual reality, whether you like it or not, because there's no counter narrative. So I do think that change is possible, but I think we have to be much more proactive, all of us who care about these issues, who care about the people affected by these issues. We have to actually concede that we're all border residents, and that what happens in the border happens to all of us, and that any so-called exception to the Constitution that's limited to the border isn't limited at all. If we can get there, I think we'll have won half the battle, because at that point, all of the damage that is being done now, all of the rhetoric, all of the misinformation that's being propagated constantly will meet its hard end in the people's reason skepticism. Mitra, thanks very much for all of your amazing work and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace. Peace.